When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today one of the things that we don't understand about war until you live it is that there's always great cities like austin texas who don't get affected and then there's these like outposts that are ripped to shreds i can still get a five dollar cup of coffee in baghdad or damascus there's still swanky places that i can go for a good steak meanwhile there's cities that are decimated that that's how it is that's how war is so can we end it Yes, because I've lived through enough cycles to know that if men and women can start it, then we can stop it. Life is a journey, and most of it is spent in the in-between, in the middle places. But every once in a while, you find yourself on the other side of something. These are the stories we are telling here. We believe that stories change the world, and we hope that when you hear stories of lives changed, obstacles overcome, lives broken, lives mended, and hope found, you'll actually see yourself in their stories. Now more than ever, we need each other and we need each other's stories. This is On The Other Side. Hey everybody, it's Aaron Ivey and Jamie Ivey, and we're so glad that you are listening to this episode. It's an incredible one. On today's show, we sat down with Jeremy Courtney to talk about life on the other side of war. This was the very first interview that Jamie and I did for this podcast, so it might be the longest one you listen to, but you got to trust us. It is worth every single minute. We recorded this late in 2019, and that's important to note because Jeremy's going to mention things that were currently happening with our administration during that time. Jeremy Courtney has come face to face with ISIS. He's suffered U.S. airstrikes. He spent jail time in Iraq, and he's even survived people calling for his death. But he's learned to love anyway, despite fearing for the safety of his own family. He wrote a book called Love Anyway, an invitation beyond a world that's scary as hell. And he also has a film that released alongside of it. Jeremy shares his journey from stateside naivety to fully immersed humanitarian on a mission to change the world through the transformative power of love. On September 11th, 2001, we all probably remember where we were, and Jeremy and his wife, Jessica, they were newlyweds. So were we. We were newlyweds, too. They were living in their cramped Texas apartment as the news of the Twin Tower attacks dominated the news. As a post-9-11 anxious America emerged, the Courtneys joined the ranks of those going to defend America, not with the military, but as missionaries. Love Anyway details their journey from fresh-faced missionaries in Turkey to love-espousing humanitarians in the violent, hellacious countries of Iraq and Syria, 
detailing the birth, growth, and evolution of their nonprofit, Preemptive Love, and the stories of those they've encountered and loved along the way. The work that they're doing is absolutely beautiful. And on this episode, we're going to cover a lot of ground. One of the most profound things we talk about is the fact that they truly do believe there is a cure to violence and war. So listen as Jeremy starts telling us how they got to Iraq after living in Turkey. So we started turning our attention to Iraq a little bit while living in Turkey because Turkey just wasn't going well in a lot of ways. It wasn't going the way that uh, it was supposed to, the way I thought it was going to on a number of fronts. Um, Not least of which was kind of a, a waking up in me to the complexities of the full human experience. So in in that vein that I had launched out of the US post 9-11, I was I had this missionary zeal that only cared about where people went when they died. It was a strict heaven versus hell kind of reality. And my whole faith largely was summed up by that obsession. But moving out of my bubble, out of the country where I was born and the state where I lived and the roads that I knew so well and then plopping down in a different country and having to navigate new streets and new experiences, it just exposed me to poor people for the first time. It exposed me to all kinds of complexities that I never had to deal with. And as I think I woke up to the complexity of the human experience, then my news sources changed and my politics changed and my faith ultimately changed. And I think one of the things that was coming into view for me was a a different perspective and a, a more immediate perspective on the war in Iraq, which was our neighboring country to the south. We were living in Turkey. Um, Iraq is south of Turkey. And and this was what year? Uh, I really started waking up to it in 2006, which was the the height of sectarian violence in Iraq, really the height of the Sunni-Shia split. The American interventionist project had really gone off the rails by that point, and um, things just continued to get worse and worse throughout the year. So you and your wife... And no kids at this time. Emma was born uh, right shortly after we, about a year after we moved to Turkey. So Emma was one when we moved to Iraq. So you get to Iraq in the middle of the Iraqi war, am I right? Because mm-hmm. that happened in, that started in 2003. Yep. So you guys get there. Um, as Americans, what was, were you welcomed as Americans? What was that process like for you and your wife and your little girl? Uh, it probably depended a little bit on which room we were in. There were some people who would have said we were heroes. We, all of us, every American, you know, we were the heroes. Mm. We saved them from dictatorship. So there were definitely people who celebrated us. And there were pictures of Condoleezza Rice and Donald Rumsfeld hanging on people's walls, not Mm. to mention George W. Bush. I mean, Bush was a hero for a lot of people to be sure. And then there were other people who (laughs) did not feel that way. Right. um, Who felt like we were the invaders. But really, we were were still mostly treated with respect and kindness. And we were in a part of the country that, that mostly appreciated all that. What was the what was the environment like? Can you kind of explain what it was like living there? I mean, just giving people a picture of living condition, what it was like in the streets, what 
yeah. what it felt like when you were there. Yeah, I, I think what I can say will be a fair assessment of most of the country, but with the caveat that not all the country was exactly the same. There were some places that were even worse off um, and, and some of that related to politics and whatnot. But in our area, we had about three hours a day of electricity when we moved in. So 21 hours a day without electricity. And we had been living in great conditions in Turkey. You know, there was no hardship there from that standpoint. And so literally overnight, we just like got thrust into this reality of like, how do you even do life without electricity? Oh, and then there's water on top of that. We didn't, there was no constant running water. You had to get water from the city that only pumped once a week. And you could like grab as much of it as you could when they turn it on. And then after that, once they turn it off, you're, you're stuck for the rest of the week. It was just all kinds of like new things to navigate in that regard. We moved in the dead of winter and Iraq can actually get very, very cold in the winter. Houses are not insulated super well, cinder block houses. And so it was, it was brutal. I mean, there are way, I'm not saying it was brutal for every Iraqi there. They know how to cope with their situations a little better than we did. And mm -hmm. it just took us a while to catch up and figure out what we were doing. But I mean, it did not take long. We were like, what have we done? This is horrible. In addition to that, I mean, there were drive-by shootings, targeted assassination attempts, politicians and stuff who lived on our street and around us. There was a suicide bombing in our town, maybe within a year or so, I can't remember exactly when it was, that it was pretty shaking. I mean, literally, like it was so big, it literally shook the city. I mean, we were blocks away, but mm -hmm. we I was standing in the courtyard it. when it happened and I felt the blast blocks away. Like I felt the air pressure change. So that kind of stuff was real and amongst us, but also people, friends, like our, our next door neighbors across the street were Iranian. And they were, they were part of the axis of evil, you know, like they were the people we were supposed to be afraid of, just like the Iraqis, just like the North Koreans, just like the Russians and whoever else. And they became our lifeline in a lot of ways. They were our go-to for, hey, can you tell me like how to fix this? <laughs> like, I think our generator just burned out. Can you come take a look at it? And we're pantomiming everything because we don't know the language and they don't know our language. And um, yeah, just people. That's that was part of what made it bearable. Mm. I read a part of your book, and you had a book that came out um, last September called "Love Anyway: um, An Invitation Beyond a World That's Scary as Hell." And in one of the chapters, you were speaking about meeting some Americans, soldiers. This would have been presumably, mm. if I'm right, in the middle of the war, and they said something to you that kind of caught you off off your kind of tracks and you thought there has to be a different mm. way than this. Um, you said, what if the real reason we moved here was to swim upstream against this whole me first way of thinking? You asked your wife, what if we could do the whole thing different? What if we could love first and ask questions later because the the man had said, let's just kill him and figure it out later. Would you call that a kind of a, a shifting moment for your reason for being in Iraq or what was that like for you guys? It's catalytic for sure. They were amazing people. These these soldiers that we were with one day at lunch, um, we were actually partnering together with them on humanitarian projects. They their main work day in day out wasn't about killing people or even policing the streets. These were these were people who were on the, the humanitarian side of what U.S. military and and part of the greater coalition did. 
And part of what was so jarring about it was after we conducted our official business, humanitarian, let's help rebuild this country kind of work, the conversation just veered off over lunch into, I think I asked a question, someone asked a question about, you know, like, how do you, um, how do you deal with the threat of like suicide bombers driving toward your convoys or driving toward your patrol stations? And it was then that the snide remark, shoot first, ask questions later came up. And then someone else chimed in. Yeah, kill them all. Let God sort them out. And it was just like the temperature in the room changed where we had literally just been talking about helping people. But then it's like a different part of the brain was activated. And then we went toward demonizing and dehumanizing the very people that we were just talking about helping. And I knew enough to know that I hadn't been through what they'd been through. Um, but I also knew that they were not the most traumatized of the bunch. They, they were, of all the soldiers that we knew, of all the soldiers that were out there, you know, doing work, there were some who had seen a lot worse mm -hmm. than this lot. And mm -hmm. I just thought if this is kind of the ethos that bubbles up, even if it's just quote unquote joking around, mm -hmm. how much harder must it be when you've actually been in suicide bombings, you've actually seen your friends killed, you're actually the one responsible for patrolling streets and right. like just feel under threat at any moment that you could die. It's no wonder that things are going so badly here. So the shift was, I went home that night and said, this, is this the best we can do? Shoot first, ask questions later. Right. And over time, I don't remember if it all fell in that night or if it worked on us for a little bit over the next couple of days, but, but over time, the turn of phrase that just kept coming to me was, what if we could love first and ask questions later? Like the rhetoric I grew up with was that, we go lay our lives down for freedom and for the flag and for the country. But that's in that moment. And I'm not saying all those people or all the military. It's not, that's not what I'm saying. But in that moment, that was not what was animating that conversation. It wasn't about freedom. It wasn't about sacrifice. It wasn't about how freedom isn't free. In that moment, it was about protecting my life and protecting my buddies. And that's it. That was the whole conversation. And... I just left thinking our ideals call us to so much more than this. Our, our ideals call us to lay our lives down, not just on behalf of people who are like us and who are willing to wrap themselves in our flag, but to lay our lives down on behalf of others who, who may not ultimately be a part of our project or our tribe, you know? Right, yeah. right. Well, then, I mean, what we know next is that the war ended, 2011. Yeah. The war ends. But what I want to talk to you about next is what happens after that. So we the war ends, U.S. pulls out all the way. Am I right about that? Yep. Okay. And then ISIS comes in. When was that? 2013 was when it all really started getting intense. Um, but it would be a bit of a misnomer to say ISIS came in. They were there the um, whole time. ISIS was an offshoot of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Hmm. It is true that ISIS fighters came in. It's true that part of Al-Qaeda in Iraq comprised foreign elements. But, but ISIS was there and um, President Obama was very much warned about pulling troops out. And it was said that if you pull the tro troops out and you telegraph it in this way and you do this and you do this, we're going to see a massive resurgence of Al-Qaeda type elements. Whatever they end up being called doesn't matter. But this is not over. And trying to keep a campaign promise and 
uphold a certain ideology that was contra Bush at the time, he pushed ahead and we saw exactly what was warned against. What did you see? Well, I would say that I was a little bit on the sick of war, tired of the neocon interventionist, police the world, vilification of others and outsiders. Mm -hmm. So Obama's way of talking, his more hopeful coalition building style, his humility toward Muslims. Um, I found that extremely refreshing coming out of eight years of what had been. And I wasn't very critical of Obama pulling troops out. I don't mean when I said that before, I don't mean I was the right one and I warned Obama. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I was generally with the Obama policy at the time, but I had friends telling me, locals saying, please appeal to President Obama, don't pull the troops out. We're, let us lay out the game plan of what's going to happen if Obama pulls the troops out. We are sure, Jeremy, you can get to him. And they were right. I had access. We are sure that you can tell him what's up. Please make sure Obama himself or at least top advisors know what's up. And I never, I don't know, like I didn't dismiss it altogether, but I didn't take it that seriously because I was so tired of war and I liked the way he was talking and I liked the way that it seemed like he was fulfilling campaign promise. That seemed important to me. And then also he was talking about national sovereignty, talking about letting Iraqis govern themselves, talking about, but, but the Iraqis were trying to warn us. It's more complex than that. Did you talk to President Obama? Mm, not President Obama himself, no. Okay, but his people. We had some access, but That's again- just a side question for my own. I was yeah, like, wow, but, look at that. Like but, I have access to the president. But yeah, but the point is I didn't- You didn't take it seriously as I they- I didn't probably leverage it the way that I, not that my voice sort of made no, all the difference know, in the world, you, but, but yeah. yeah. I had a front row seat for exactly. stuff. And I, it, let me just say it this way. It's hard to know what's real sometimes. It's hard, not real. It's hard when you're playing eventualities out- it's hard to know. It's hard to know who to trust and not trust in the sense of like, are you trustworthy, but just, are you reading it right? Mm. Are, are you, is your analysis informed by your bigotry, informed by your trauma, informed by your pain, your politics, your religion? Or are you just a really good strategist and you right. know how to read the tea leaves of what's coming down the road? I, those were the things I was like, I don't know, man. I just, I think, I think we probably do need to stop these endless wars. And so I just kind of let, let it ride. But I'll tell you this, like over the next few years, well, just fast forward to today, every single thing that I was warned would happen has, has happened. happened. Really? They got it exactly right. Mm. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. 
Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. You know, you're saying it's hard to trust. I'm sitting here thinking, I think the same thing every day. Like, I don't know, doesn't matter what administration it is. I'm like, I don't know how to trust people. Yeah. And you're getting a front row seat as to what that looks like. Well, fast forward to today. I don't know if that's what you want to talk about, but fast forward to today. And we've, as we sit here and record this, it's been about three weeks since President Trump pulled troops out in a highly controversial move to keep a campaign promise, to end forever wars. And I found myself on the complete opposite side now. Listening to your, Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and, and having lived through a cycle of it and having had to course correct my own politics and my own strategy and my own foreign policy thoughts on some of this stuff. Hmm. So what has your reaction been this time around? I've been highly, highly critical, vocally critical, publicly critical. And our organization is not partisan. I mean, we've found any given campaign or any given room I'm in, we've got a significant number of liberals and conservatives, Democrats mm-hmm. and Republicans, Christians and Muslims, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. I don't, I, I gain nothing by alienating one side of this conversation. But I think the lessons that we've learned over the last, uh, you know, seven, eight years since President Obama pulled troops out is that it's not as simple as keeping campaign promises that you make before you're in office, before you've lived through the complexity of what all this actually is. Or have all the knowledge and information. Yeah. So we were in a position after the White House released its statement on Sunday night three weeks ago, we we put out a statement that very like immediately and said, if this is not reversed before these troops fully leave the country, like if we have a window here, please, for the love of God, stop it. Because if you pull troops out, here are the things that are going to happen. And it took three or four days before every, every one of our predictions has happened. Really? Hmm. Like this stuff is, it's actually... Now, from where I sit today, it's actually not, um, it's complex, but it's also predictable. Yeah. Which you have said twice that they were saying, this happens, this is going to happen. We're predicting it. Mm -hmm. I have a couple questions about life in Iraq after the war. It doesn't matter what time span that might be. I think that's something that can be a little hard for us Americans who might never step a foot on the soil where you and your family live and where your friends live and where you do life. What does that look like on the other side of Mm. war in a country? I mean, I can only imagine, and from what I know about you guys and the work that you guys do, where you started out um, with helping people with their heart surgeries and you moved into more of a, a full kind of full nature of help. What does it look like on the other side of war? It's hard to know when you're on the other side of it, okay. or it has been hard in our case thus far to know. You said something earlier. You said the war ended. When was that? 2011? <laughs> yeah, and, took- and the second you said the war ended, my what, the thought that flashed through my mind was, did it? Right. Because you know, like, mm. it, it, I won't say it's never felt like that, but we're back. We're back in it. And I know from an outside audience, it can look like 
you can read it one of two ways. You can go, well, Obama ended the war. Now look, we're back at it. What happened? Who who led us astray? Mm. Another way of looking at it is, yeah, I mean, I mean, all wars go through ups and downs and like, you know, there's ceasefires, but it doesn't mean the war ended. And I think a very valid reading of where we are right now is that the war just, we haven't even ended yet. Mm. This whole thing. I mean, of course, they... They've said it's over and now they're blaming it on other stuff and they're redrawing lines. And But we upset the balance of power. And I'm not saying the balance of power was great. I'm not saying the balance of power was just or that there weren't horrible things going on under Saddam Hussein's regime. But President Bush, going back a full administration from anything we've really talked about yet, was profoundly warned against invading another country and overthrowing a 30-year dictator. But ideology, goals, strategy, hubris, ego, personality, all coalesce together to lead us forward. And every single thing that was predicted at that juncture has come true. Only worse, really much worse than we imagined. Really? Yeah, much worse. Because in 2001, after September 11th, I, I, can't, I can't remember the timeline, but we were just getting into sort of like we hadn't, we had no Facebook. We had no Twitter. Right. We yeah. had no YouTube. Oh, yeah. We, none of these tools now that have ensured that the global spread of terrorism and all kinds of militia type activities is far more complex than anyone was talking about or imagining in 2001. And so if someone warned Bush, Al-Qaeda will be strengthened if you overthrow Saddam Hussein. That warning was given, but what was probably not said was that Al-Qaeda will turn into ISIS, will mm -hmm. invade Syria, will invade Libya, will spread across Nigeria, will be... ISIS is still to this day in 20-some countries across the, the world where they declare themselves to be active and have uh, emirates, as they call them. Right. We didn't, we didn't know how the solution that the Bush administration came up with was going to be the next generation's problems. Mm. So part of what it looks like is that I feel a profound responsibility to, well, we, we've never been about Iraq. Our work was never strictly about Iraq. Our organization is called Preemptive Love. We've been about trying to to promote this idea of preemptive love, live a life of preemptive love. That's the mission. That's, that's how we conceived of ourselves from day one. And from day one in Iraq, I actually remember us talking about, should we start working in Iran, Iraq, and North Korea all at the same time? The axis of evil. That's what President Bush called them back in the day. And we want to end war. So should we just start in all these places at once or should we really double down on where we live here in Iraq at this moment? And we decided to double down on Iraq. And for years, we were mostly only known for Iraq work. But in our hearts, we exist to end war. And we exist, as you've said, to get the other side of the story. Yeah. Um, and to hear from people that we think are our enemies and to press into pain and to bring people together and form coalitions. So on the other side of the Iraq war, so to speak, um, we felt a huge responsibility to, uh, to continue to chase down this bigotry that exists in our own hearts and to be a part of 
healing all that's tearing us apart mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. globally. And how are you guys doing that? Can you talk practically yeah. what that looks like? Yeah. So um, after ISIS sprung on the scene or sprung up in such a big way from inside Iraq, um, we found ourselves just being overrun with millions and millions of people displaced and uh, pushed out of their homes, many of whom had experienced genocide at the hands of ISIS. And at that time, we were just a heart surgery organization. We were doing heart surgery work for kids in Iraq who were affected probably in large part by chemical weapons. Which is not a story that's talked about. It's crazy. It's not talked about. It's like legitimately crazy. But now our neighborhoods are filling up with millions of refugees who need everything, food, water, shelter, jobs to rebuild. They're, They're not going to get back home for years to come. So we pivoted our work to serve that population. And, and so now I'll fast forward to six years, five, six years on from that and just say that we've, we've come up with a, we've synthesized all this work and all these years and 15 years in the region doing this kind of stuff. We've, we've synthesized it all together in a framework where we've learned to treat violence like a disease. Hmm. Um, violence from an epidemiological perspective, violence spreads like disease Hmm. spreads from one person to another. It's contagious. It's contagious, literally, and from a data standpoint, contagious. And the World Health Organization has a proven method that we all fairly know intuitively about how to stop the spread of disease, how to stop the spread of a contagion. And so we took and we're not the first to do this, but we we are riffing off the health model and thinking about how can we stop the spread of violence from one person to another, one community to another, one country to another. So the, the model is like a three-step thing. I'll do the health model and then I'll tell what it looks like in our world because it's a bit of a metaphor as we pull it over to our world. The health model says you you like basically contain the contagion. You find patient zero, so to speak, right? right? Mm-hmm. We see this on our end of the world apocalypse oh, yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah. You know? Every like, apocalyptic movie. Patient zero, find patient zero, isolate patient zero, that's one part. Then you protect the vulnerable. So you don't want, especially like children can be really vulnerable, mm-hmm. pregnant women, mm-hmm. elderly, like some immune systems are more robust. So you work to isolate and protect the vulnerable from the contagion. And then three, you change the behaviors that lead to the spread of the virus. So this is how all of us learn to wash our hands. Right. It's how right. we learn to use condoms, you know, things like that in sexually transmitted disease work. So we saw that model and found a correlate in our work. So we have a three-step thing that we think about as well. We provide emergency relief on the front lines of violence. Mm. Front lines, meaning where the violence is going Ground down. Yeah. yeah. So when bombs are still falling, snipers are sniping at us, people are running from violence, we run toward the violence because that's where people are making their decisions in that moment Which side am I on? Mm. What am I deciding in this moment at a subconscious level? Who is for me? Who's against me? Is, am I seeing political actors around me helping? Or am I seeing a a vacuum of political actors that I thought would be on my Mm. side? Am I seeing religious factions around me shooting, sniping, or serving and risking? Do you think that's where violence is most contagious in that moment right there? It's formative. You know, if you're, if you're a, say you're a young man trying to get your family out of a war zone or across a border and 
you see the people that you'd been thinking were your enemy. You thought all of them were bad. All those Christians, all those Muslims, all those yellow flag people or green flag or, you know, whatever, ethnic group this, ethnic group that. But then those very people are the ones who show up to serve you. It's powerful. It, it changes the narrative even as you're still running for your life. And it, it helps ensure that when you settle, you're not bringing that violence out with you. Because on the way out, you've been somehow immunized or at least you've gotten a dose of the medicine mm -hmm. that it takes to mm -hmm. heal us. So we, we help fast on the front lines to, to stop the spread of violence from one person to another. We do it with emergency food, emergency medicine, shelter, those kinds of things that people need when they're running for their lives. And, and not just in formal war zones. We, we also apply that principle to like Juarez, Mexico, where migrants are on the run from Honduras right. and Cuba and Venezuela and they're, they're displaced. They feel marginalized. They're trying to decide who's for me and against me. Are, are all Americans against me? Are all Christians against me? Are, you know, so we try to build diverse coalitions in all these places that where we respond in diverse ways and help chip away at that violence. Um, the, the protect the vulnerable piece for us has a lot to do with jobs and economic development because the data shows us that if your country or your community, your neighborhood is economically inviable, <laughs> then you are much more vulnerable to the predations of yeah. violence. That's yeah. when gang type behavior right. yeah. becomes an alternative to more uh, constructive economic development. Right. If you and me both would decide who we're going to go with, depending on who puts kid food on our kid's table, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and a lot of our narratives about gangs in the U S or ISIS overseas or whatever it it's, we misunderstand the economic realities and the belonging realities of what I think any one of us would do to protect our families. So we do a lot of economic development work and individual job creation work to protect the vulnerable, um, to protect widows, so that they can continue to sustain themselves in the midst of conflict to protect young men so that they don't get recruited into violence in the midst of conflict. And it's actually a little counterintuitive because a lot of the big aid world, big box aid work doesn't value young men. Which is surprising because isn't that who would be the most susceptible, I would think? It's an overcorrection, I think, that started in a really pure place. Of wanting to help women. Help women. Yeah come up with meaningful vulnerability metrics for sure that should in every way, almost every way prioritize women. Yeah. Uh, the pendulum just swung too far. And but, but if you are trying to look at it from a standpoint of violence, at least and healthy society at large in vulnerable spaces, mm -hmm. we believe young men are extremely vulnerable to some of this stuff. Yeah. And we can't talk about quote unquote radicalization on the one hand without talking about healthy community for young men on the other hand. Right. So all that to say, we don't exclude young men from our programs. We, we keep an eye on young men and try and find business opportunities and work opportunities um, across the board that would protect their vulnerabilities as well. Cause we all have them. Yes. And then the last major piece uh, that health group calls change the behaviors that spread violence. We, we do that. Um, but we also think about, 
changing the ideas that lead to war. There's ideas, even more fundamental than behaviors. Ideas give rise to behaviors, give rise to war, give rise to violence. So our community, we just call this pillar of our work community, and we work to build relationships, literally highlight and draw out our common points of unity so that we change the ideas about each other that lead us to war, whether that's Christian, Muslim, gay, straight, Hindu, ethnically, gendered, you know, all this we see all these things that are dividing us as, as huge opportunities to come together and make a more robust future for ourselves. Um, I'm curious to think, um, as I hear you speaking, and I think that a lot of people in their, in a good place in their heart be like, yes, we agree. This is all great. But on the flip side would be super fearful of the love first, ask questions later motto and mantra that you guys have built your organization on out of fear, out of the unknowns. How has your life switched from the fear of what I don't know to now the proximity to who you live life with? And what has that done for you and your family? Yeah, I fear is a lot more malleable than we probably think about or give it credit for. It's not a fixed reality. It's not dry concrete. It's uh, it's squishy. It it moves on us, and we can actually cause our fear to run away in, in a healthy way. Like as we draw near to people, Jessica loves to say, "Bigotry can't withstand friendship," and I think we could substitute that with fear. There there are some things that fear cannot withstand. I think this is especially true when dealing with whole categories of people. Of course, you can draw near to an individual person and they can still scare you deeply. And for good reason. There are individuals who are out to do bad to us at times. But a lot of our fears are predicated on stereotypes. For sure. And right. An entire group. Categorical mm-hmm. thinking. And that paralyzes us. That's why we don't go to that part of town. Mm. It's why we don't welcome those people into our places of worship. It's it's why our political conversations are so fraught because we we sort each other out into categories and that becomes the whole of the ballgame for us in a lot of there's, ways. There's no way forward. Yeah. So I, I was subject to some of that. I was guilty of that. And I think as I drew near to any number of people, I've seen my fear run away. My fear could not withstand an actual human Mm. from that group. Mm. Muslim, Arab, Iraqi, Syrian, North Korean, Iranian, um, trans people of color. Like who knows? The number of baggages that I've had to leave behind over the last 15 years of launching out into the world have, I travel pretty light these days because I'm not carrying all that fear around with me and all that bigotry around with me anymore. You said here, um, I think I saw this in your in your in the film that you guys recently released, which great job by the way, loved it so it's much. Incredible. You said something that was really shocking to me in a sense that um, not surprising, but maybe just where I would think that there's tons of violence in America, there's tons of bigotry. Everything you listed that that you've seen, it, it it's here as well. Different, very different. And I don't know, I never lived where you've lived. But you said you must have been in the States or seen on the news when Charlottesville happened in Virginia. 
And you made a statement that you said that it looked like ISIS um, in Syria and Libya. And that really stopped me in my tracks when I saw it because I have a lot of hatred towards what happened in our country and the bigotry and the violence that that happened because of the fear and anger that people have. But when you re, when you related it to the same thing that you're seeing, it shook me a little bit. And I think in America, that can be hard for us to hear a little bit because we would think ISIS is the worst possible thing that could ever happen. What do you think when you related those? And I am telling you my honest feelings of that kind of made me feel a little uncomfortable a little bit. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I think it's important. So maybe people don't know what we look like while listening to this podcast, but all three of us speaking right now are white. Um, I, I didn't grow up with enough diverse voices in my life to know that I have a lot of friends now, but didn't then. People of color who themselves, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents would all say, ISIS is just one of the super scary things we've seen in our life. We've been dealing mm. with that kind of exclusionist, absolutist, genocidal reality our whole life. So for me to make that connection was really, I mean, it was a, a couple of things. One, starting to diversify my own friendship network right. and let other people tell me what their mm. experience of racism in America has been like trying to recruit influential leaders of color years ago, maybe 10 years ago when some of this started or six years ago when ISIS started blowing up, trying to recruit influential leaders of color into our effort and finding them go, nah, man, we're good. Like we're getting shot down in the streets here mm. by people with official authority to do so. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Like we, we just don't have any more energy to give. I'm not trying to say we don't care. I'm just right, saying, right. I just don't have any more to give mm. right now. And starting to hear them make connections um, was a part of it for me. And then some of it was just like literal parallels of guys with guns and flags and rhetoric and saying the past used to be better for us than today. Why? Both ISIS and the white terrorists here, the white power groups here, are both essentially bemoaning equality and pluralism and the rise of minority groups to a place of status that is not even yet on par, but from their perspective feels like a significant loss of the power that they once held. Mm. Both Sunni Islamist style ISIS type thinkers or white power KKK nationalist style white terrorists. So this isn't, I'm not trying to oversimplify anything, but you're saying you believe there is a cure to violence and war. I do, for a number of reasons. One, war doesn't look like what we think it looks like until you've lived through it, which is one of the reasons I'm sounding the alarm on white terror 
right now. It's why I'm sounding the alarm on the weaponization of whiteness on, because I've seen what it's looked like to, to weaponize. Um, and, and it's always the men that get weaponized first, most mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and most extremely, but, but then male weaponization accrues to itself a whole support network where women are fully enlisted. So this is not merely about toxic masculinity, so to speak. Right. Um, there is a, there is a whole realm of women who come around these support, come around these networks and are fully engaged Mm. in the rationale and justification of it. Anyway, all that to say, just like I said earlier, it's hard to know when the war stops. It's hard to know when the war starts. Mm. And I think without being a fearmonger, that's not my style, that we should be gravely concerned with what we're seeing in the United States right now. It is, I have seen this movie before. I've mm. lived through this movie before. Iraq, Syria, our team worked a lot in Libya. So we have been through cycles of civil war and complete failed state status and things like that. And the U.S. is different. But one of the things that we don't understand about war until you live it is that there's always great cities like Austin, Texas, who don't get affected. And then there's these like outposts that are ripped to shreds. I can still get a $5 cup of coffee in Baghdad or Damascus. There's still swanky places that I can go for a good steak. Meanwhile, there's cities that are decimated. Mm. That's how it is. That's how war is. So can we end it? Yes, because I've lived through enough cycles to know that if men and women can start it, then we can stop it. I've seen it stop. I've seen ceasefires work. Mm. I've seen economic development work in a region to such a degree that people just say, you know what, we're good now. Like it's not worth it anymore. I've seen political leaders who were stoking the fires die off and be replaced by political leaders who were hopeful and visionary and winsome and healing. I've, I've seen the rise of algorithmic kind of stuff that drives us against one another and determines who hears what truth about the world. And then I've seen offline analog <laughs> gatherings that subvert all the algorithms and remind us that we belong to each other and I wouldn't dare want to kill you or your people. I've lived through all this enough to know that we can do it. The only challenge is can we scale it? It, it, it can happen. Mm-hmm. We just have to scale it together. So you guys, one thing I love about what you're doing is you're, you're putting all your chips in on this concept that peacemaking, being a peacemaker, is actually a legitimate thing. Like y'all's mission is to build the most diverse community of peacemakers on the planet. You're putting all your chips in on that concept where most of the world is saying fight war with war. You're saying fight war and violence with peacemaking. How did you get to that place? Because I've been shot at. I've dodged the shrapnel of falling bombs. My teams have gone through more than I've gone through. And we've been present and stood over the bodies of ISIS fighters, civilians. You know, we've seen houses full of ISIS fighters blow up and seen their colleagues in the next house over just fight harder and harder. And my, one of my takeaways from all of it is 
We cannot bomb ideas out of existence. But conversely, I've seen kindness. I've experienced love. I've experienced people expend great daring and risk to help me, heal me, save me and others that were beside me and among our groups. And kindness, love can absolutely, it may be the only force on the planet that has ever been proven to actually change negative, evil, corrosive ideas into something good and wholesome and beautiful and generative. Love confounds physics. And, and, and yet, maybe the other way of saying it is, I, I believe profoundly in physics. And this, there is a real energy here that we're talking about. Evil, darkness, these ideas, they, they are an actual force. They are an actual energy. You can truly feel them emanating off people and places. They are real. And different groups have tried to describe them different ways. You know, some spiritualize it more in Christian terms or some take it more in Buddhist directions, but we're all saying the same thing. There is something real between us that is more than just biology. Right. There's a deeper level here. And physics says energy cannot be destroyed. It, it, it can't. It just goes into another form of energy. And somehow our most brilliant leaders think we can bomb these energies out of existence. And I'm telling you, no, they just spread like violence. They just move from one house to another. But if we're willing to take the evil into ourselves, if we're willing to risk the, the pain coming into ourselves, I believe that we as humanity, via our love, have the capacity to metabolize evil and spin it back out as an equal and opposite reaction called more love in the world. That's how we transform this. But it's not some lighthearted flowers and marches kind of thing. There might, there's place for all that. It's, but the, it's going to take a much more risk-taking kind of endeavor where we put our bodies on the line to protect the vulnerable and we put our bodies on the line to transform those we want to see transformed. You dropped a bomb when you said you can't bomb ideas out of people. Yeah, man. That's I'll good. preach right there. That's good. I don't think my last question needs to be asked because that is a great way. My last question, though, I'll ask. Look, I say, I don't think I need to ask it, but let me go ahead and ask it. Last question before we keep you too long. Um, you're talking about this whole conversation started like, what's it look like on the other side of war? And basically, you're like, we're not on the other side of any war. We're in war. Uh, where you are, where we are, everything is still in the midst of it. I think my final question for you is, why should we care about this? Hmm. People living their lives, it's not affecting, I'm speaking for me as like a listener. What What is there in, what's in this for people who don't live where you live and who um, maybe our majority culture and not being affected by what we would see even here in America. People who are the majority um, religion, what, what, why, why should people care? 
This is the second time this question's come up in like a week. It came up at a live event. Um, we're touring this film and the book, and someone asked it with a little more smugness than you did, but uh, you didn't have any smugness, to be clear. <laughs> but but someone asked it, and it caught me off guard because it was the first time probably that anyone... I'm in rooms where people are like, yes, we care. Like, we want to do this. Hmm. Um, I always think about listeners, and there's some people who this will never cross I, their... I know, I've never thought about it. I've never thought it. about this. I love it. I'll say what I said to this guy because I was caught off guard, and I think my response still holds up. It's what I want to say is I'm not sure if we should. Should. Because the shoulds and the oughts and the musts, we don't tend to react very well when people tell us what we should do, when people tell us what we must do. Like psychology has proven that like even if I want to do something and then you tell me I should, a lot of people are going to back away. Like, no, I want to want to do it. I'm right. now I'm not doing it. So I'm not here to say there's some moral absolute or heaven and hell reality that's going to be bestowed upon you if you do or don't. That hasn't quite gotten us where we want to go, in my opinion. So I'm not offering shoulds. I'm offering an invitation. I think we can. I think we have the capacity to care about this. And I think one of the things that I've become aware of in my own life and my own experience is our capacity for care is so much bigger than we understand. Our capacity for faith is so much bigger than we understand. Our capacity to let other people's pain just be with us. Our capacity to see the world in ever more complex but unified, integrated ways is more complex. And I didn't know what was possible until I left home. I didn't know it was possible until I let other people in. And I imagine, I assume that I'm only, what, one-fifth of the way, one-tenth of the way, one-twentieth of the way to the capacity that I imagine I might actually have. And so it's an invitation to a greater unfolding it's an invitation into a bigger becoming. Whoever you are now, whatever you've learned, whatever you've attained to, amazing. Keep going. There's even more for us. And I think one of the ways that we get there is by opening ourselves up to this conversation, opening ourselves up to people who scare us, opening up ourselves to our own bigotries. The war that we've been talking about, when did it begin? When did it end? The war is in us. Wars in our own hearts. These, the reason you can't bomb ideas out of existence is because they start in our heads and our hearts before they ever reach our hands. I blow off somebody's hands, but that doesn't, it's not, that's a symptom. It's not the war. And so it's an invitation. It's an opportunity that's available to us. You don't have to take it. You'll just be missing out on who you could become. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. 
The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Wow, that is what I had to say after that interview. I remember when we sat down with Jeremy and we knew we wanted to talk about on the other side of ISIS, but we got so much more out of this interview. I left this conversation with him truly feeling like I had just hung out with someone that believes all the way to his core that we could truly get rid of hatred and war in this world. He really does believe that. And I remember when we were interviewing him, you and I didn't have much to say. We just let him talk. And he he actually believes this, like you said, at the core of who he is. I, I love when he said, it's not that we should care about this. It's that we can care about this. It's like an invitation to care, to have the capacity to see the world in this complex way. And I love that. I actually read his book, Love Anyway, before this interview, and I highly, highly, highly recommend it. One of my favorite things that he said in today's interview was when he said, you cannot bomb ideas out of existence. I have not stopped thinking about that since he said it the very first time in this interview to me. Today's show was mixed and mastered by the team at Podshaper. The music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. On the Other Side is organized by Lindsay Sweeney. We are your hosts, Aaron Ivey and Jamie Ivey. You can find us on Instagram. I'm at Aaron Ivey ATX. And I'm at Jamie Ivey. And follow the show on Instagram as well. It's at On the Other Side Pod. You can also listen to another show that I host, The Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey. Friends, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week for another episode of On the Other Side. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.